welcome back. This is Sheep Stuff You Should Know. I'm Dr. Rosie Bush here at UC Davis in my office, and I'm joined here with Dan Macon, and you are in the asylum, as <laughs> I like to call it. Exactly, exactly. <laughs> How are you doing? I'm all right. I'm all right. How about you? You've been on the road. Oh my gosh, yes. Been busy, busy. We've we got back from vacation at the end of June, I think it was. <laughs> I can't even remember. <laughs> and then that very next week, my kids came down with the COVID. And so I stayed home to take care of them and then uh, got all kinds of plans ready to go do some sampling with awesome uh, graduate student, Austin Brown. And then I got COVID. <laughs> Oh man. So I had to postpone that. But uh everyone has been really flexible and wonderful. And so we ended up being able to go out uh to the north coast on Friday. I tested cool. negative that morning. <laughs> <laughs> yep. Yeah. Tested negative, hopped in the car. Yep, exactly. Perfect. <laughs> let's go. And I, I kind of set it up. I said, this may be a bit premature, but let's just assume all's gonna go well. And it did. So that was good. Cool. <laughs> yeah. Cool. Yeah. Awesome. Yeah. It is quite really amazing <laughs> how you know folks are so willing to let us on their farm and work with them and their animals and seen some really beautiful ranches and some beautiful sheep and very cool really good yeah very cool and you were pulling blood and is that what you were you were sampling yeah we're pulling blood to test for opp it's kind of a sort of a baseline for future projects in mastitis so cool yeah excited cool. yeah but yeah. it's hot so we're trying to get all our sampling done in the morning before it gets too hot but... was it hot on the north coast um so it was when we started bleeding in the morning it was in the 60s and then I definitely had to take my sweater off as we got going because it's it's humid you know we're used to a dry heat out here and yeah. so yeah it was a little more I was warmer than I expected to be, even though yeah. it was only in the seventies. So yeah. Yeah. Makes sense why they tend to have more um, skin issues and things like that. Parasite yeah. issues. And yeah. So, cool. Yeah. It was beautiful. with the fog and all the redwoods. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> Very cool. Yeah. First time Austin had seen redwoods. Yeah. Yeah. He was like, it's really cool seeing the things through other people's eyes when they're yeah. discovering. Yeah. He's like, this is very different from Davis. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. Like, yeah. Pennsylvania. Yeah. 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 And it's funny because we were talking about how the selling point of Davis, California is that it's only an hour from, you know, the beach or the mountains, or it's not that Davis is great. It's just close enough to everything else. <laughs> Davis has flat ground. Yeah, and it's not prone to many fires, so that's good. That's true. That's true. <laughs> Today, that's the selling point. Very true. Very true. <laughs> yeah, so he really liked it up there. He thought it was neat. Cool. It's cool. Yeah, I actually, we went through the Avenue of the Giants on the way back. Um, yep. And I had to do the, you know, pullover and take a picture by the big tree and... <laughs> We have those pictures too. Yeah. That's cool. Yeah. So that's that cool. Yep. 
So we'll be planning some more trips up towards kind of the northeast side. We like to come up to the foothills. We have some folks and then um, yeah. in, in the valley for sure. And then we're going to do a trip down to Southern California and then a couple folks in the Bay Area. So we'll, awesome. yeah, kind of, it's going to, it's a busy summer for sure. Yeah, that's great. <laughs> Very cool. Yeah. You said you had a busy week. What do you got going on? Oh, let's see. Um, you know, sheep chores before my real job, which <laughs> with the heat trying to start as early as possible. Yeah. But, so got that going on and got, what else do I got going on? I'm part of a sheep sustainability working group that ASI has put together. So oh, I've yeah. got the first meeting on that today. Which Me will too. Be, I will see you there. Yeah, see you at noon. <laughs> yeah. 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 So that'll be, be good. And then yeah. I go see some people that want to start raising chickens this afternoon. And what else do I got? Thursday is a Yuba County, Yuba Sutter County day. So I've got to be down there. And there seems like there was something else really important happening. Oh, we've got our, our working rangelands drought webinar tomorrow evening. So I'm going to um, present some information on early weaning and beef cattle. We did some, did some research on weaning cattle, weaning calves early at the Sierra Foothill research and extension center so that should be fun and yeah and then are you part of the integrated livestock cropping systems webinar that's tomorrow night i know that yeah and so i it's so is my webinar so oh, okay. i won't be on that one yeah. yeah i missed the last meeting so i'm excited to jump onto this one yeah be interesting yeah. cool yeah I'm, I'm speaking at one I think next month, I guess I better figure out when that is. <laughs> think about what I need to say. Yeah, we have a lot going on in August, don't we? <laughs> <laughs> yes, we do. Yeah. Yes, we do. All the, all the statewide meetings and everything coming up. So it'll yeah. be good to see every, everyone. But yep. Yeah. Yep. Very cool. Um, well, today I thought it would be fun to talk a little bit about um, maybe some of the approaches and maybe the value or perceived value or actual value of doing, um, some diagnostic workups and what that means, what that could look like for different operations. I think you guys heard there was a little bit of interest after you and, uh, Ryan had talked about the safety meeting that he had with his guys on mm -hmm. necropsies on farm and yeah. Oh. Yeah. Yeah. So I, <clears throat> I think, you know, there's a whole bunch that goes with that question. I think for our little operation, even, even though I can just call my wife when I need a bet, mm -hmm. um, certainly economics enter into, to that. And I think part of, part of my growth as a shepherd has been to start being able to recognize um real subtle changes in behavior or conditions that that suggest we need to do something intervene mm -hmm. medically with sheep um and i think that's one of the challenges with sheep right that they're so stoic yeah. that you don't notice they're sick till they're upside down yeah um, and it's i 
I don't know. I've been trying to figure out how to frame this because I one of the talks I'm giving is about herd health planning, but also like when to intervene, like we're talking about. But, you know, a lot of our planning is in these annual calendars. So those windows yeah. of opportunity when we're going to do preventative measures or we're when we're intentionally going to address specific issues. So whether that's yeah. vaccinating before breeding or looking at feet or, um, you know, all of those things that we plan in the year, that doesn't mean, you know, like that between time when we're, you know, in the morning looking at our animals every day, mm-hmm. that still plays into it. And so what's the role of that? You know, what are we, do we jump in? When do we jump in and things like that? So I guess to start us off, one of my favorite quotes, and I've said it, I think at three different presentations I've given with you. <laughs> so sorry if people have heard this before, but <laughs> I think it's so great is that we miss more by not looking than by not knowing. So like you yeah. say, just really getting used to your animals in their environment, because it's going to be different than someone else's animals in that environment or your right. animals <clears throat> in a different environment and kind of getting used to what their normal rhythm is. Um, and how they interact with each other, with the dogs, with you, um, is really valuable. And so that kind of daily interaction, whether it's you or an employee and really kind of empowering them to move through the animals and watch them is really important. Um, what kind of things do you think, you know, you get from that? Like, what do you, what do you look for? You know, one of the things that that um, at least in our, the way we run our operation that gives us that opportunity is when we're moving sheep, um, even just onto a next, the next paddock. So um, when you're not moving, when, when sheep are just, are, are out grazing, sometimes you don't notice little changes in energy levels or, or appetite. But when you're moving, even if it's a short move, Anything that's not quite keeping up mm-hmm. um, is something I look for. And then I, I look for other symptoms within that, you know, if it's respiratory or if it looks like it could be parasite issues or drop in body condition or things like that. It kind of gives me a signal as to, to what I need to look at more thoroughly. Yeah. Um, I think the other, other thing at this time of year that we look at, so we're, we're feeding, um, alfalfa every other day to supplement protein because the user are on entirely dry forage that's maybe five percent protein not enough for maintenance at this stage and so anything that doesn't come right up um we call it the the ovine mosh pit when you're out there trying to feed this time of year Mm because they're they're definitely focused on that's the white pickup that brought the hay yesterday where the heck is the hay today? Um, but anything that doesn't come up, um, we'll, we'll pay extra attention to. As we move into flushing in September, you know, we're adding some, some energy to their diet at that stage. And um, we try to feed it in such a way that everybody's getting their fair share. But at that stage, we also start looking for some acidosis. Mm-hmm. Um, as they start eating a little more grain, if they overconsume, and we we create some acidity in the room, and we 
you'll see that and them not coming up to feed too. Mm -hmm. um, I try to with with the lambs. I try to walk through them every day, too, mm -hmm. and um, and just kind of get everybody up, make sure they're bright and happy. And I think I think eating is for me is a big sign. Yeah. Something that doesn't get up and start grazing or showing an interest in feed is a big one. Yeah. Well, and that I mean, I'm sure a lot of people, and you've probably seen this too, is like they will eat even when they're dealing with some of the worst mm -hmm. things. So it's like mm -hmm. that can be a little bit tricky too. It's mm -hmm. like, mm -hmm. you know, I've seen lambs with broken legs that are still getting up to eat. And so, right. it, yeah. And so, I, but I agree. I think that's like a really big sign that something is definitely not going right. And, you know, there's, but yeah, the, how quickly they get up if they're, right struggling struggling to move and then there's a difference between you know like you said you like working them in the morning because it's more comfortable for everybody yep. <laughs> and yep. so what if someone who's walking by your flock midday or two o'clock in the afternoon what might they see that's different from what you saw in the morning and that you might get a call <laughs> <laughs> you know we haven't had those calls for a long time that's good um, thankfully um you know, I think I think in the hot weather like this, what's typical for our sheep is that they're going to be out grazing in the morning. They're going to shade up and ruminate um, in the in the heat of the day. Um, they'll um, they'll get out and graze kind of late afternoon when you think it's too hot mm -hmm. sometimes, mm -hmm. um, but they will get out and, and graze in the afternoon. I think. Um, what people might observe is is panting certainly in the heat mm -hmm. um, and i think we've we've trained the neighbors enough to know that that they know our sheep can deal with the heat mm -hmm. um something that's off by itself you know i look for for something that um didn't move when the rest of the sheep moved uh, maybe droopy ears um maybe maybe some trouble difficulty breathing um and we look for signs of parasite issues too kind of <laughs> on an ongoing basis we we saw something really odd when we were up in the north coast we got to ride around on a four-wheeler with um one of the farms we visited and oh, it was so great and we so we were riding around in their weathers <clears throat> and they were kind of you know showing off and running off and running away from us as we would expect and then there was this one weather lamb all across the field all by himself with his head down and we're like huh that's different so we go closer go closer and you'd think he could hear us coming and he didn't move but you could tell by that point that he was chomping away huh. <laughs> we got within 10 feet of him and he kind of popped his head up with feed hanging out of his mouth and was like Oh, where did everybody go? <laughs> <laughs> and then ran off to the rest of the group. But it was so funny because you know you you see that as like that is not normal. Why is he not with everyone else? So then we go closer, and it was it was so odd. <laughs> like, why? I know people that have no situational awareness too. <laughs> yeah, <laughs> yeah, that was pretty funny. How funny! But yeah, he looked 
perfectly healthy. He was just (laughs) chowing down. Yeah, he was zoning into his own chomping noises, apparently. (laughs) (laughs) It was so bizarre. Uh, I don't know. Maybe he did have some hearing problem, but (laughs) eventually he heard us and his head popped up. But (laughs) he was focused. He was very focused. Yes, very focused. But yeah, good to, you know, get out there and see him and you know, follow up on something like that rather than just assume he was okay. (laughs) Well, and so that's the thing too. I think um, part of what I've learned is, is the importance of paying attention to little details. Yeah. Right. It's easy to get busy and say, yeah, I don't need to walk through them today. Everybody was fine yesterday. Mm -hmm. Um, And that's invariably when you miss something. Yeah. Yeah. And especially I don't know. It's, it's interesting working with folks that see their animals every day, minor changes are really hard to notice. So maybe it's a drop in body condition score. That's only half, you know, half a point or however you want to describe it, or maybe it is a slightly different head carriage, but like really minor changes when you see them every day are a little bit hard to notice. And so this is, it's really important to see them every day, but also kind of give yourself grace if those things happen and they kind of slipped by because, you know, if we're not keeping records for those types of things at those events where maybe we bring animals in and we're looking a little closer, then it could be really easy to miss those trends as they happen. I think that's part of the value of maybe having a relationship with, you know, whether it's a mentor or your veterinarian where they are able to come out and look at your animals, that helps because they will remember what the state they were in before and be like, you know, kind of question, huh, why do we think this might be, Yeah. you know, why would they look like this? What happened between then and now that could have led to that? You know, not that anything's wrong with where they are, but is there a good explanation for yeah. what their change of state might be? Yeah. Yeah. I think that's something um, in previous years during the summer when Roger was taking care of the ewes, I, I'd see him um, maybe once a week. Mm-hmm. And I noticed things because I, I didn't see him every day that Roger didn't necessarily notice. And so now that I'm working more by myself, figuring out how to, how to have another set of eyes on the sheep that knows the sheep. Yeah. Kind of help me see those blind spots a little better too. Yeah. Yeah. And I wonder if there are tools that can help with that too. Like, you know, if you take a picture every Saturday or, you know, there's something that can help you kind of keep yourself in check, sort of like a check and balance. I wonder if there's some possibilities for technology to help with that, you know, with yeah. EID tags and, and readers at water troughs or, um, you know, there's some tags now that I think give you some more information on vital signs on the animals mm-hmm. in a real time um, basis that, that may have some potential down the road too. Yeah, for sure. Um, gosh, I've seen a lot of it in, cattle i haven't seen i know it exists for sheep and goats um for i know they do some of it on dairies in europe and where they're doing visits to the feeder visits to the water trough 
Um, And if any of those decline, then it'll alert you. Uh, I think one of the issues in sheep production particular is that as, as we ramp up to scale, we, we treat that as a flock or a group mm-hmm. as opposed to making decisions about individual animals. Yeah. And so I think that's an area for some innovation that could help, you know, make, help us make decisions about individual animals more consistently. Yeah. And I, and I appreciate, I definitely appreciate that, you know, like wanting to manage them as a flock or a band and you know rather than treating individuals but then remembering that the group is made up of individuals and there's so much value to identifying the first of what may be many um and it could i think also there's value to just learning from even those that may be random events um so I guess what I'm saying, like, you know, we talk about managing things at certain time points. Well, if we start noticing animals getting sick, you know, at any time point or animals behaving, you know, not responding to their nutrition like we expect or different things, it doesn't have to necessarily be illnesses, but maybe they're not, their coat isn't, you know, their wool isn't as strong or as mm-hmm. uh, lustrous as we expect it to be, then there's something is not responding like we expect it. And so in that, in between those events where we want to manage animals, that's an opportunity to capture that data, whether it's just making note of, you know, those issues or actually trying to get a diagnosis for illnesses. And it doesn't, some of these illnesses for, you know, let's, if we're talking specifically about around lambing, if it's abortions, some of those we can't do anything about right then and there, right? If it was blue tongue, if it, even if it was chlamydia, you know, we, a lot of folks want to treat chlamydia abortions, but those bacteria were in that uterus months ago. Treating them at the time of abortions isn't saving anyone else from having an abortion. Um, And so getting that information though can help us in planning how we're gonna manage the group or the flock in the future. I think there's also for me a kind of a threshold, Mm -hmm. one, one or two abortions or one animal kind of off feed and not feeling quite right is very different than <clears throat> three or four within a short time frame showing the same symptoms. Mm-hmm. And that so blue tongue would be an example of that for me in the fall. Mm-hmm. You know, maybe seeing an animal that looks a little off in the fall. Yeah, I, I try to treat her, but I don't worry a whole lot about it. We've had occasion where we had, you know, 10 or 15 animals go off feet in water because their their feet were sore and their mouths were sore and they didn't want to move. Um, and that was that was a blue tongue outbreak that was pretty significant. That, I don't know. I don't I guess I don't have kind of a hard and fast rule about it. But when it becomes more than just a handful, then we start paying attention to. Yeah. And I, I think there's. So, you know, if you have 
animals that die for, you know, a lot of times sheep don't show a lot of signs before you just find them with their feet up um, in the pasture. And so I think there's a lot of opportunity that we can learn from those um, on an individual basis. And, you know, is there something I need to do to prevent this for the rest of the flock? Um, Whether that's right now taking immediate action or do I need to think about changing management, you know, for the future? Mm-hmm. Um, and there's, I don't know, there's some interesting examples for like a lot of times animals are treated for pneumonia with antibiotics and there could be all kinds of other reasons <clears throat> for the animal to be struggling to breathe that isn't caused by a bacterial infection, which, you know, if it's very likely to be a bacterial pneumonia then she and she might benefit from antibiotics i'm all about treating her because she deserves the benefit of treatment if it can help save her life but if she dies then we need to learn from that and we mm-hmm. need to know what was the cause of pneumonia we're just going to assume that she died because of failure you know that treatment failed and she had pneumonia or can we learn from that is you know maybe she had liver abscesses mm-hmm. that caused bacteria to then spread to the lungs and it causes a different type of pneumonia. <laughs> so I, I think there's, and that would have a totally different uh, kind of management change to help prevent that kind of illness. Like you said, with, mm-hmm. um, with when we're flushing with the acidosis that yep. can kind of lead down that path. <clears throat> yep. Yep. I, and I, I think there's an economic um, consideration there too. I don't, I know we're, we're talking about doing a, uh, a workshop on kind of doing field necropsies, um, mm-hmm. both of mature sheep and of lambs. And that be something that would be really helpful for me. I will admit, I don't take everything that dies to the lab just yeah. because of the cost. Mm-hmm. Um, but I do try to take an animal to the lab at least once a year even if I know why it died, because getting some information back on nutritional status and on micronutrient status and <clears throat> parasite load and those types of things is, I think, really valuable information. <clears throat> so it's almost more an investment in improving the flock management than in knowing what I could have done differently with a particular animal, I think. Yeah, and and I think... I don't know. I, I always, I like to, so necropsies are literally the ultimate diagnosis. It's the last chance that we have <laughs> to learn from that animal. And I think if there's a way that we can train people to do this on their own farm, there's a lot that can be learned and not mm-hmm. suggesting that they diagnose all of their own problems, but there is a lot to be learned about what systems might be affected. Right. There are different services that vet clinics provide that will, you know, if you have a relationship with a vet, there are standard ways to do a necropsy in the field and take photos. There's kind of like prescribed photos to take, and then you can keep records of that. And it doesn't mean you have to act on them necessarily that, you know, like I said, we talked about, not all of these issues are something that need immediate action, Right. but it, knowing <laughs> what it is, is something that you can keep track of and, see if there are trends yep. you know see if in if maybe some kind of management chain 
change would help reduce those. Um, well, and that's that's a good point. I the the one exception to my inability to do necropsies has been where we know it was a predator, and I wanted to know a little oh, yeah. more about which predator it was. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, for us, coyotes are are one particular um, issue that we got to deal with, but mountain lions are another. Mm-hmm. And so kind of knowing what to look for um, in, in something you know is predated. Um, I think there's a lot of a lot of folks here in the foothills that jump to the conclusion that if something died, a mountain lion did it. Mm-hmm. And that's <clears throat> more rare, I think, than we than we realize. So knowing what to look for, you know, where the bite marks are. Um, was the animal alive when it was when the coyote was there, I think that's part of it too. Is there hemorrhaging evident under the skin or was, did the animal die from something else and the the coyote just came in to clean it up? Yeah. Yeah. That's a good point. Yeah. We got some really interesting photos of a, a ewe that died up in the mountains last year. Um, Just all of the scavengers that, that come in and feed off of a carcass like that is really, really fascinating. And the interactions between the scavengers, not to take us down a rabbit hole, but it's it's pretty interesting how much we'll, we'll chew on dead mutton. Yeah. And what do you, so if you were able to accurately identify which predator was on the carcass, how does that information impact you? What, how do you use that information? So if it's an uh, if it's a, a group of sheep that we don't have a guard dog with um, and it's a coyote, <clears throat> I know that looking for coyote holes, figuring out if, if there was a problem with the fence would be would be my first action in that situation. If it were a mountain lion, um, regardless of the predator protection we've had, we had in place, I'd start thinking about how to up our game. You know, do we need taller fences? Do we need more dogs? Uh, what's what's kind of the options that we have available to us? Mm-hmm. Yeah. Yeah, that makes sense. I like that. Not just collecting data to collect data. <laughs> no, no, no. That's I think that's, <clears throat> so there's, you and I both do that in our day jobs, right? <laughs> Hopefully but, there's a good long-term outcome, but <laughs> yeah, yeah, absolutely. Yeah. But I think, I think that's important to keep in mind from a producer standpoint that you want to collect information that you can, you can take action on. Yeah. And some of it is a long-term investment, but some of it is this happened today. I know what the problem is. I can change something tomorrow to deal with it. Yeah. Well, and so for necropsies, I know I've heard a number of the barriers. I'm curious, you kind of mentioned one, like actually hauling a carcass down to the lab. So that's yep. one pretty <clears throat> big barrier to submitting animals for necropsies. Yep. Um, I think another <laughs> one is, you know, even if you're not submitting, you know, if you had to wait for a vet to come out to perform a necropsy, that could be another barrier. They may, may not be a vet around to do it for you that day. It's not like you can plan these events ahead of time. So, and there's definitely a serious vet shortage right now. So getting someone out on emergency to do a necropsy would be 
probably really challenging and cost prohibitive and cost prohibitive potentially. Um, And I think that is another barrier is the perceived lack of value of looking at a dead animal. Um, So yeah, definitely. I have to tell a funny story that my daughters reminded me of this last week. We had a, a, you die about this time of year when they were both still at home and we loaded her up in the back of the truck headed to Davis like at two o'clock in the afternoon. And my truck broke, a fuel injector broke right on the off ramp from highway 113 onto Hutchinson. Oh my goodness. (laughs) So got two kids, a broke down truck and an increasingly bloated you in the back of the truck. (laughs) They were so proud to be a sheep guy's kids at that. Gosh, dad. What a great adventure. Yeah, so glad we did this. <laughs> <laughs> Next time we'll stay home. Thanks. Yeah. Oh, man. <laughs> but the lab came out and got the you out of my truck while I waited for the tow truck. So that was good. That's good. Yeah. Good. Folks at the lab are wonderful. Yeah, and, they really are. And they, I don't know if everyone knows this, but they're at least in California. Um, and this has changed over the years just based on funding and um, the staffing and all of that. But they're typically, they are able to euthanize animals if there is a herd outbreak and diagnosis would be best on an animal that was freshly dead. They can euthanize animals to help you come up with a herd health uh, diagnosis and help you even, you know, communicate with your vet about um what these mean and what maybe next mm-hmm. steps might be. Mm-hmm. Um, they're really great uh, to talk to over the phone. Yeah. Um, they try to be really helpful. And the the cost for necropsy, I think right now is around $135. Um, it may be a little bit more, but it's right around there. It's between 135 and 145. And um, that, it, like you said, includes all the minerals. It includes all the bacterial cultures. Um, yeah. It includes parasite testing and any kind of viral testing. And there's so many tests. If you added up all the tests, it would be hundreds of dollars. Yeah. And so the state subsidizes <clears throat> all of those that those fees for an necropsy because it is it benefits the kind of agriculture economy in the state to know what sorts of diseases are out there and and to detect things early exactly yeah they yeah. they say with that foot and mouth disease outbreak in the uk if if those animals were detected earlier it could have really limited the spread yeah um, of disease and so, yeah so i mean i think those are great reasons to empower people to want to you know to be able to look at their animals and see what, you know, what may be abnormal, what may be really bizarre, um, and ask for second opinions. Um, what are some options if you can't, if you're further away from the lab than I am and you can't get there for a couple of days for whatever reason, are there, there are other options, um, to think about? Yeah. So that would be where, um, it would be good to have a standard approach to necropsy one mostly because 
that way you don't forget anything. Right. Right. <laughs> um, I know I've had clients frustrated with me because they'll bring an animal in with mastitis and here I am looking at its eyeballs and its gums and they're like, no, it's back there. I'm like, yes, I know. I have to do the whole thing. <laughs> <laughs> and, and you pick up other things and it is important to be, to do a complete exam. And especially with a necropsy, it, you know, you see some of these amazing abnormalities. And I think Ryan explained when you guys were talking, he said some of these lambs had two and three things wrong with them yeah. and we kind of it's really easy to get excited and tunnel visioned into yeah. the most obvious abnormality but it's important to be able to do the full exam so i think step one would be knowing how to do a necropsy on your own and have what tools do you need um which is not that many it's really not that complicated mm -hmm. um what tools you need and how you're going to dispose of the animal afterwards mm -hmm. um and then what pictures you should take and then how to submit tissue samples so you know that's it's pretty much what a pathologist there so there's the gross necropsy which is what you would be doing on the farm is opening up the animal, looking at all the organs. And that's where the pictures would be really helpful because mm -hmm. once you cut pieces of organs off, you're only giving the lab a little tiny chunk. And so seeing, you know, you may be giving them a small chunk of really abnormal lung, which is what they want, but seeing how that was distributed across the lung can help them determine what disease is most likely. Mm -hmm. So pictures would be a really important part of that. And then how to submit samples, like what size samples. So we can take mm -hmm. a chunk of lung. It doesn't have to be sterile collection, but just a big enough chunk so that when the lab gets it, basically what they do is they sear the edges like a steak. <laughs> and then when they cut into it, the inside of it is still, it's sterilized basically. Yeah. So yeah. then they can do cultures and be able to rely on that, the results of that sample better. Wasn't externally compromised or contaminated. Yeah, but if we send yeah. samples that are too small, then we're less able to get sterile samples yeah. after that. So like knowing how big to cut them, uh, how to store them, how to send them. I think all of those things can really help um, you know, whether or not you need to send in samples, I think would be a good thing to help folks figure out too, like what, yeah. you know, what warrants an actual trying to get a diagnosis. And I say trying, cause even yeah. you know, a, a lot of times it's hard to come up with the exact answer. It may be at the time of death, you have the second thing that came along. It wasn't the first thing that made them sick. Yeah. Um, so it's all part of a story, having the history, what changed, what did the animal look like before they died? What were their clinical signs? And then being able to do a necropsy, I think would build a really good picture and make a story for what might've happened and what we can do to prevent it in the future. Yeah. Right. Right. Is there, um, you know, if you're in a more remote location, is there, some things that you should think about in terms of storage, keeping keeping things from um, breaking down a little bit, cold storage or froze freezing or things like that. Yeah, I know the lab doesn't love it when we freeze everything. I think yeah. we can freeze things for culture. Okay. Um, but some of the tests, 
freezing it can kind of destroy the samples. So, yeah. but that would be where either calling, I think calling the lab is probably the best yeah. way to get good information. Um, but they do have, and that, I want to, I really want to uh, make a step-by-step guide for folks in the field with our pathologists and help them to help people know exactly what they need to put it in a Ziploc bag is usually fine. Yeah. Um, and then shipping it on, you know, in a cooler with ice packs, um, those little foam coolers that can be shipped. And then the caps yeah. on the, their website, they have a little label for folks to put on the box so that the mail service knows there's biological <laughs> materials in there. But yeah. And then there's even, um, I can't remember if it, I think it's FedEx, but there's an agreement between the university and one of these mail carriers that can get you a better price on shipping costs and it, they know exactly where to go. Um, and yeah, so I, I didn't know that was available until a couple of years ago. Yeah. Yeah. I didn't know that was available either. That's cool. Yeah. But I, I mean, I know even in remote locations, like when I was working with uh, Grace Woodmancy with even just um, blood samples to test for blue tongue and stuff mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. that it was like, OK, well, the mail, you know, you have to know when the mail's going to go out, when it's good, you know, so yeah. Yeah. that way you can kind of plan that way. It's not sitting in the cooler for too yeah. long. Yeah. But, that's been more and more difficult to to have reliable mail service. It that's seems like so true. No kidding. Uh, yeah, but that's kind of best case scenario when the stars all align. Yeah, <laughs> <laughs> yeah. <laughs> but yeah, I think even having a local vet clinic help look at those photos, and then mm -hmm. you know the CAFS lab is usually, they're really helpful with consulting with veterinarians on what they're likely looking at, or if they really ought to send samples, what they need to collect for the next one, if they weren't able to collect it on this one. And yeah. so I think there is a level that can be local and then, you know, deciding what needs to be sent. Um, Does every state have a, a veterinary diagnostic lab? Ooh, you that's know? a good question. I think most do. Yeah. Um, there's the national veterinary diagnostic lab, um, network. Okay. <laughs> it's like vet learn or something like that there, but so there is a network of state diagnostic labs that, um, they all have to, their tests all have to be at a national standard. Um, and then the national lab, I believe is in Ames, Iowa, um, and so anything that needs any kind of confirmation gets shipped to them oh, okay. and they do all the confirmatory tests. So there's a state level of funding and then there's even a national level. Um, and that federal or national confirmation would be on things like foreign animal, potential foreign animal disease outbreaks, things like that. Yeah. But even they're the ones that, um, serotype for blue tongue so we can okay. tell it was blue tongue and then that sample gets sent to them and they're the ones that tell us which one it is okay um so even ones that aren't foreign animal diseases okay yeah i can't i'm not sure where the testing for the foreign animal diseases occurs but i imagine it is there yeah <laughs> um, yeah yeah so there's all kinds of different 
levels of testing that they'll do. Um, so, but yeah, and all to kind of protect our animal agriculture operations and try to prevent something from blowing up out of proportion to where it, you know, hopefully we can control. It's almost like we maybe had some experiences in our, our society as a whole and things that we didn't quite detect early on. Yeah. <laughs> I wonder what that would be. <laughs> yeah. yeah, and I think this network, and i am it's been a while since I've read all these, but I'm pretty sure the, the state diagnostic labs, that network was really had to jump in really early with the COVID outbreak and help yeah. them with diagnostics and cause they already have this big network, but yeah. Yeah. And I know CDC is really involved in human hospitals, but I'm, I'm not sh aware of a network that like we have for animal diagnostic laboratories. Yeah. They might, but yeah, I know that this network was pretty valuable for quickly getting tests out there and available and if a producer wanted to to learn how to do an necropsy and and uh we hadn't done our workshop yet or, or lo and behold there are producers in other parts of the country that probably won't come to a workshop in california yeah how how would you go about training yourself to do that sort of thing work with your own vet or what what would be the steps i would work with your vet because Every, they're gonna most I mean we were all trained to do necropsies in our vet schools and so we're all going to have a certain level of what we expect to see mm -hmm. um, but really honestly I think most vets are going to want to find a common resource that you and your veterinarian agree on so there's a couple of resources that provide pretty good outlines for how to do a field necropsy that already exists um, there's one out of Canada and one out of Australia um, that are pretty helpful. Um, and then hopefully we can have one from California pretty soon. Yeah. Um, yeah. But yeah, I think, but really honestly, I think working with your vet would be the first step and, you know, trying to make sure you have something that's clearly outlined that um, is easy to understand and, repeatable i think part of the the barrier at least for me is that because i don't do it all the time i'm not very efficient at it mm -hmm. so do i have time to do it I, I probably always do but i don't always make time to do it and yeah. i think that's that's part of the barrier for me yeah i wondered if that if time was a big thing yeah um and especially if you don't do it early then right. the day goes by and then she gets more bloated and you know your what you see becomes less valuable and i guess that's a good point to make is the sooner that you can either get to that animal and do the necropsy or get the animal to the lab the more valuable the information you're going to get right. out of it so it's kind of right. one of those garbage in garbage out scenarios if right. she's been dead for two days <laughs> may, like, may get a lot of clostridia that has been taking <laughs> over the carcass <laughs> one of my favorite novels is a book called english creek by ivan doig and there's a scene in it when the the protagonist who's like a 14 year old kid comes upon a, a sheep outfit in the mountains and they've gotten into some kind of toxic plant 
and the herder tells him they've got to skin all these ewes out to save the pelts. And he discovers as he's doing it that they've been dead about two days. It was not a real pleasant job. Oh, no. And then the herder <laughs> wanted to serve him mutton stew for dinner, and that didn't go over me. No, either. God. <laughs> <laughs> oh, my gosh. That's wild. I wonder, does the wool even stay on the skin if they've been dead for that long? It probably depends on temperature. Yeah, okay. Probably depends on temperature, I would suspect. That's interesting. Yeah, nasty. Yeah. <laughs> nasty, nasty, nasty. <laughs> the nastiest things that I've had to deal with were dystocias where the calf has been dead for oh, a while. Oh, yeah. <laughs> but those things go bad really fast. It is amazing. I mean, the dead the calf can be dead for four hours and it's already starting to decompose, but it's in so a little to... oven. So. <laughs> yeah. Sammy had to cut some dead twins out of a U. Only time I've ever had to have her do that, um, and they were bad. And the, <laughs> the girls were smaller then, and I think probably one of them said to Sammy, what did you do today? You stink. <laughs> of course, Sammy had washed like 10 times yes. and the smell wouldn't come out. It you know? sticks. It does. Yeah. 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 But it does make it a little bit easier to pull them apart. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. It's the only benefit. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. Uh, yeah. Yeah. <laughs> I don't think you could raise livestock without some sort of gallows humor, being able to laugh about all the the gross stuff that you, you have to do from time to time. I know when Ryan was planning his meeting, he asked me for some photos yeah. so that he could show a normal organ and then what it might look like if it had pneumonia or if it had um gosh like pulpy kidney disease or some of these kind of different diseases that they might come across and i had i was great finding all of these really gross photos <laughs> i had a heck of a time trying to find normal <laughs> photos yeah why would you why would you get normal photos exactly right? i even emailed some of the pathologists who teach um in the vet school and they're like i don't think anyone has photos of normal i'm like see <laughs> this is us being totally tunnel visioned and now i think they're gonna start taking some just so they have an archive of normal anatomy but you think about it like who sees the inside of a sheep on a normal basis you know, you know it would be cool it'd be cool to have um we got this we totally aside but we did a, a wilderness first aid class and um, they gave us this little weatherproof spiral bound book of cards with you just go through it. and Here's the symptom. Here's what you do when you're out in the wilderness. Uh -huh. Be cool to have. Here's a normal. Here's an abnormal. Yeah. Of, of each of the major organ systems. Yeah. That you could you could have throw it on the dashboard of the truck and start conversations with your kids yeah. on the way to school. Well, and it kind of goes to, sh you know, to what we were saying earlier about even just looking at the animal's behavior and all yep. of that, the more you see normal, the faster abnormal sticks out like a sore thumb. Yeah, right. And if right. we're not opening up these animals, how do we know what's normal or abnormal? Right. How do we know it was just, 
you know, congestion because the animal died or it's been laying on its side for a day in the blood pools? How do we know right. what to expect when we open a carcass? What is normal or abnormal? Yeah. <laughs> and so yeah. if we don't do enough, then that gets really tricky. And I think, yeah, that's where having a, an atlas to show us what's normal, you know, where things should be, because sometimes that's part of the problem is they're not yeah. in the right spot. <laughs> right, right, right. Exactly. So, yeah, exactly. I think that would be cool. I think too. about that with, with, you know, with deer hunting, thinking in particular about some of the organ meats that I like to keep, mm-hmm. you know, what, what is normal? What do I need to be worried about? Yeah. Mm. Yeah. Yeah. Probably hunters have the most, maybe, I don't know, have more opportunity to look inside animals than more. Yeah. And and more opportunities to kind of get good at doing the the work of exposing those organs too. Right. Yeah. And there's definitely a technique to do it so that you get a good look Yeah, what's going on and I remember when I was a student, I was, it was like a surgery. Oh, I have to be so careful. And the resident comes up and is like, you, you know, it's dead, right? (laughs) (laughs) You can cut it open. It's okay. You're not going to hurt anything. I'm like, but I don't want to mess it up. This is our last chance. (laughs) So Pathologists are amazing. They just have, you know, their patients are already dead and they just have a hold. You have to have a different sense of humor to do that yes yes definitely <laughs> definitely we are I've, I've got a collection of predator skulls that i use for teaching mm-hmm. and uh, we just got a coyote skull from the trapper and my youngest daughter Emma's going to help me get it prepared for using and she said i, I don't think i'm going to be able to get to it today dad is that okay and i, I said yeah i don't think it's going to die any more any further <laughs> I think it's still dead. It'll be there tomorrow. <laughs> <laughs> Not going anywhere. Yeah. <laughs> That's funny. Cool. Well, well, this is really cool. This yeah. is great. Thank you. Yeah, thank you. <laughs> kind of half-baked idea, but I think hopefully more will come out of these conversations and we can have some pretty, I, like I said, I think there's already some pretty good resources out there, but it'd be good to get some that are specific and what may be unique to California and yeah and not the least of which I think it's I've got I've got the calf lab number in my phone Mm -hmm. so I think you know it's kind of like having your vet's number in your phone yeah something does happen the sooner you can contact and talk to somebody there and find out what they're going to need I think the better yeah Um, and and if if I were in another state I think I'd find out what that what those options were Yeah. And they don't work on a, they, well, that's not true. They do, they are able to come in after hours if it's a herd health outbreak. Yeah. Um, but finding someone on the phone after hours can be more difficult. Right. So knowing what that process is like ahead of time would be good because there is an after hours phone number, but knowing that that's probably different than the normal phone number would probably be good to have, if it was something that really needed attention right away. Yeah, exactly. Exactly. Cool. Cool. Thank you. Well, have a great rest of your week. Yeah, Um, thank you. You too. And I'll see you in 40 minutes. (laughs) I will. I will. And this has been another episode of Sheep Stuff You Should Know. Dead Sheep Stuff You Should Know, I guess we should call this one, right? (laughs) 
<laughs> I'm Dan Macon up in Auburn and Dr. Rosie Bush down at UC Davis and uh, we'll see you next time. Bye Rosie.